0: This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Europe, The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Chapter 16. The feeling that the story has run out. It is as well to admit when your enemies are onto something. Today, the antagonists of European culture and civilization throw many accusations at the continent. They say that our history has been especially cruel, whereas it has been no crueler than any other civilization and less cruel than many. They claim that we act only for ourselves, whereas it is doubtful if any society in history has become so unwilling to defend its own or more ready to assume the opinions of its detractors. And we remain among the only cultures on earth so open to self-criticism and the recording of our own iniquities that we are capable of making even our greatest detractors rich. But on one single thing, it is possible that our critics are on to something. They do not identify it well, and when they do identify it, they prescribe the worst possible remedies, but it remains a problem worth identifying, not least in order to raise ourselves to the answers. The problem is one that is easier to feel than it is to prove, but it runs something like this, that life in modern liberal democracies is to some extent thin or shallow, and that life in modern Western Europe in particular has lost a sense of purpose. This is not to say that our lives are wholly meaningless, nor that the opportunity liberal democracy uniquely gives us to pursue our own conception of happiness is misguided, On a day-to-day basis, most people find deep meaning and love from their families, their friends, and much else. But there are questions which remain, which have always been central to each of us and which liberal democracy on its own cannot answer and was never meant to answer. Things like, what am I doing here? What is my life for? Does it have any purpose beyond itself? These are questions that have always driven human beings, questions that we have always asked and ask still. Yet for Western Europeans, the answers to these questions that we have held onto for centuries seem to have run out. Happy as we are to acknowledge that, we are far less happy to acknowledge that, with our story of ourselves having run out, we are that nevertheless still left with these same questions. Even to ask questions today, such as these, has become something like bad manners, in the spaces where such questions can be asked, let alone answered, have accordingly shrunk, not only in number, but in their ambition for answers. If people no longer seek for answers in churches, we simply hope that they might find sufficient meaning in the occasional visit to an art gallery or at a book club. The German philosopher Jürgen Habermas addressed an aspect of this in 2007 when he led a discussion at the Jesuit School of Philosophy in Munich titled, Unawareness of What is Missing. There he attempted to identify a gap at the center of our post-secular age. He related how, in 1991, he had attended a memorial service for a friend at a church in Zurich. The friend had left instructions for the event that were closely followed. The coffin was present and there were speeches by two friends. But there was no priest and no blessing. The ashes were to be strewn somewhere and there was to be no amen. The friend, who had been an agnostic, had both rejected the religious tradition and was also publicly demonstrating that the non-religious view had failed. As Habermas interpreted his friend, quote, the enlightened modern age has failed to find a suitable replacement for a religious way of coping with the final rite of passage, which brings life to a close. End quote. The challenge that Habermas's friend posed can be quietly heard around us in contemporary Europe, as can the result of the questions going unanswered. Perhaps we are wary of this discussion simply because we no longer believe in the answers and have decided on some variant of the old adage that if we have nothing nice to say, then it is better to say nothing at all. Or it is possible that we are aware of the existential nihilism which underlies our society but find it embarrassing. Whatever the explanation, the changes that have happened in Europe in recent decades and sped up exponentially in recent years mean that these questions can no longer go unaddressed. The arrival of large numbers of people with wholly different, indeed competing, attitudes towards life and its purpose means that there is a new urgency about these questions. This urgency is motivated not least by the certainty that societies, like nature, abhor a vacuum. Occasionally, a mainstream politician seems to acknowledge some of the fears that have begun to bubble up underneath the surface, giving all these questions some urgency. But these acknowledgments come in the form of a terrible, exhausted fatalism. For instance, on the 25th of April in 2016, a month after the attacks in Brussels, the Belgian Minister of Justice, Cohn Guines, told the European Parliament that Muslims would very soon outnumber Christians in Europe. Europe does not realize this, but this is a reality, End quote, he told the parliament's justice and home affairs select committee. His cabinet colleague, John Jambon, minister of the interior, added that although in his estimation, the overwhelming majority of Belgium's 700,000 strong Muslim community shared the values of Belgium, quote, he said, I've seen a thousand times. The worst thing we can do is make an enemy of Islam. That is the very worst thing we could do. End quote. Somewhere underneath all this is the sense that unlike other societies, including for the time being the United States, this could, all very change, this could all very easily change in Europe. Having been for some years, as the English philosopher Roger Scruton has put it, downstream from Christianity, there is every possibility, possibility that our societies will either become unmoored entirely or be hauled onto a very different shore. At any rate, very unsettling questions lay dormant beneath the surface of our societies even before they began to change as rapidly as they are doing now. There is, for instance, the dilemma that Ernst Wolfgang Buchenford posed in the 1960s. Quote, Does the free, secularized state exist on the basis of normative presuppositions that it itself cannot guarantee? End quote. It is rare to hear this question even raised in our societies perhaps we sense that the answer is yes, but we do not know what to do if this is the case. If our freedoms and liberties are unusual and do in fact arise from beliefs that we have left behind, what do we do about it? One answer, which dominated in Europe for the final years of the 20th century, was to deny this history, to insist that what we have is normal and to forget the tragic facts of civilization as well as life. Intelligent and cultured people appeared to see it as their duty not to shore up and protect the culture in which they had grown up, but rather to deny it, assail it, or otherwise bring it low. All of the time a new Orientalism grew up around us, quote, We may think badly of ourselves, but we are willing to think exceptionally well of absolutely everyone else, End quote. Then at some point in the last decade, the winds of opinion began gently to at first to blow in the contrary direction, They began to affirm what renegades and dissidents suggested in the post-war decades and admit, grudgingly, that Western liberal societies may in fact owe something to the religion from which they arose. This admission was not made because the evidence changed. That evidence was there all along. What changed was a growing awareness that other cultures now increasingly among us did not share all of our passions, prejudices, or presumptions. The attempt to pretend that what has been believed and practiced in modern Europe is normal has taken repeated blows. Across some rather surprising learning moments, like a terrorist attack here, or an honor killing there, or a few cartoons somewhere else, the awareness grew that not everybody who has come to our society shared our views. They did not share our views about equality between the sexes. They did not share our views on the primacy of reason over revelation. They did not share our views on freedom and liberty. To put it another way, the unusual European settlement, drawn up from ancient Greece and Rome, catalyzed by the Christian religion and refined through the fire of the Enlightenment, turned out to be a highly particular inheritance. While many Western Europeans spent years resisting this truth or its implications, the realization came anyway and although some people still hold out in most places it has become impo- it has become possible to acknowledge that the culture of human rights for instance owes more to the creed preached by Jesus of Nazareth than it does say to that of Muhammad one result of this discovery has been a desire to become better acquainted with our own traditions but whilst opening up a question it does not solve it for the question of whether this societal position is sustainable without reference to the beliefs that gave birth to it remains deeply relevant and troubling to Europe. Just because you are part of a tradition does not mean you will believe what those who originated that tradition believed, even if you like and admire its results. People cannot force themselves into sincere belief, and that is perhaps why we do not ask these deeper questions. Not only because we do not believe the answers we use to give and reply to them, but because we sense that we are in some way in an interim period of our development and that our answers may be about to change. After all, how long can a society survive once it has unmoored itself from its founding source and drive? Perhaps we are in the process of finding out. A recent survey by by Pew showed that affiliation to Christianity is falling away in Britain faster than in almost any other country. By 2050, the Pew projection suggests religious affiliation to Christianity will have fallen by a third in the UK from almost two-thirds in 2010 and will thus become a minority affiliation for the first time. By the same date, Pew indicates Britain will have the third-largest Muslim population in Europe, higher than France, Germany, or Belgium. The left-wing demography expert Eric Kaufman wrote in 2010 that even in Switzerland, By the end of the century, 40% of the country's 14-year-olds would be Muslim. Of course, all such predictions are rife with possible variation. For instance, they assume that Christians will continue to become non-religious, whereas Muslims will not, which may be the case or it might not be. But such, such statistics also fail to take into account ongoing mass immigration, let alone an upsurge in the kind of recent years. In any case, these are movements, like across Europe and the United States, where Muslims will by 2050 outnumber Jews among the American population. These are movements that cannot fail to have significant repercussions. Demographic studies show ethnic Swedes becoming a minority in Sweden within the lifespan of most people currently alive, which raises the fascinating question of whether Swedish identity has any chance of surviving this generation. This question will also have to be faced by every other Western European country. Europe was proud of having international cities, but how will the public react to having international countries? How will we think of ourselves? And who and what will the word we even define? Addressing or even acknowledging questions of meaning has become so uncommon that the absence seems at least partly deliberate, as though our problems have fueled a habit for distraction as well as ennui. Despite the unparalleled opportunity, our media and social media cannot help purveying endless rounds of reaction and gossip. To immerse oneself in popular culture for any length of time is to wallow in the most unbearable shallowness. Was the sum of European endeavor and achievement really meant to culminate in this? All around us, we see other demonstrations of shallowness. Where once, our forefathers built the great structures of Saint-Denis, Sartre, York, San Giorgio Maggiore, St. Peter's, and El Escorial, the great buildings of today compete only to be taller, shinier, or newer. Municipal buildings seem designed not to inspire, but to depress. Skyscrapers in European cities steal the glances of people from the nobler skylines, which are now all but dwarfed. In London, the great building to commemorate the turn of the millennium wasn't even a structure built to last, but a vast empty tent. If it is true that the best test of a civilization are the buildings it, leave, it leaves behind, our descendants will take a very view or a very dim view of us. We look like a people who have lost the desire to inspire because we have nothing with which to inspire. At the same time, the highest ends of our culture seem content to say, at at best, that the world is complex and we must simply embrace the complexity and not bother looking for answers. At worst, it says openly that all of this is hopeless. Of course, we live in an age of extraordinary prosperity, which allows us to be comfortable even when we are in despair. But it might not always be like this. Even today, when the sun of economic advantage still shines upon us, there are people who notice a gap in our culture and are finding their own ways to fill it. For some years now, I have been especially struck by numerous accounts I have heard firsthand and also read from people who have chosen to convert to Islam. Partly, these stories are striking because they are so familiar. There are almost always some variant of a story nearly any young person could tell, and they generally go something like this, I had reached a certain age, usually in the 20s or early 30s, and I was in a nightclub and I was drunk and I just thought, life must be about more than this. Almost nothing else in our culture says, but of course there is. In the absence of such a voice, young people search and they discover Islam. End quote. The fact that they choose Islam is a story in itself. Why do these young men and women, very often women, not reach out and find Christianity? Partly, it is because most branches of European Christianity have lost the confidence to proselytize or even believe in their own message. For the Church of Sweden, the Church of England, the German Lutheran Church, and many other branches of European Christianity, the message of the religion has become a form of left-wing politics, diversity action, and social welfare projects. Such churches argue for open borders, yet are circumspect about quoting the texts they once preached as revealed. There is another cause as well. The critical analysis of and scholarship around the roots of Christianity has not yet occurred in the same degree with the roots of Islam. A worldwide campaign of intimidation and murder has been especially successful in holding back the tide. Even today in the West, the very few people who work on the origins of the Quran and engage in serious Quranic scholarship, such as Ibn Warwick and Christoph Luxemburg, publish their work under pseudonyms. Just as anyone deemed to have blasphemed the religion of Islam in the Muslim-majority world will find their life in danger, so across Europe, the people who have engaged in criticism of the sources and the founder of Islam will find themselves under sufficient threat that they either stop, go into hiding, or, like Hamed Abdel-Samad in Germany, live under police protection. This has certainly had an effect in protecting Islam for a time and slowing the tide of criticism in its origins and beliefs that is coming its way. Since 1989, the texts, ideas, and even images of Islam have become so heavily policed and self-policed, even in Western Europe, that it would be understandable if a young person becoming politically and religiously aware in the last few decades might have arrived at the conclusion that the one thing our societies really do hold sacred is and impervious to ridicule or criticisms are the claims and teachings of Muhammad. But the work of the blasphemy police cannot stop the tide of critical progress forever. A greater appetite for critical scholarship of Islam's origins has begun, and the internet, among other tools, has made it easier to spread and disseminate this than at any period in history. The Danish former extremist Morten Storm, for instance, abandoned his belief in Islam as well as his membership of Al-Qaeda when in a rage one day, he opened his computer and typed into the search engine, contradictions in the Quran and began reading. He later wrote, quote, the whole construction of my faith was a house of cards, built one layer upon the next, remove one and all the others would collapse, end quote. Storm was by no means a typical Muslim, but the fear he had of inquiring into the origins and meaning of Islam and the need to satisfy that urge is something that many Muslims sense. Many are fighting this urge and will hold it back and will have to try to hold others back because they know what it could do to their faith. You can glimpse this fear when the leading cleric, Sheikh Yusuf al qaradawi said in an interview in 2013 that if Muslims got rid of the death penalty for leaving their religion, Islam would not exist today. Such leaders know what is coming their way, and they will fight with everything they have for everything they believe. If they fail, as may probably happen, then the best that can be hoped for is that Islam will at some point in the future be brought to the same state as the other religions, deliteralized, wounded, and defanged. This would solve one problem, but whilst alleviating Western Western Europe's problems, it would not in turn solve them. The desire for radical change and the sense of emptiness of people like those converts would continue. Yet there would still be a desire and a search for certainties. Yet still these clearly innate desires run against nearly all the assumptions and aspirations of our time. The search for meaning is not new. What is new is that almost nothing in modern European culture applies itself to offering an answer an answer. Nothing says, quote, here is an inheritance of thought and culture and philosophy and religion which has nurtured people for thousands of years and may well fulfill you too. End quote. Instead a voice says, Find your meaning where you will. At worst, the nihilist creed can be heard quote yours is a meaningless existence in a meaningless universe. End quote. Any person who believes such a creed is liable to achieve literally nothing. Societies in which that is the case are likewise liable to achieve nothing. While nihilism may be understandable in some individuals, as a societal creed, it is fatal. And we look in the wrong places for answers. Politicians, for instance, seeking to tell our thoughts back to us and address the broadest possible range of people speak so widely with such generalities as to mean almost nothing. They too speak as though there are no issues of significance left to discuss and apply themselves to matters of organization. Some aspects of that organization, such as education, are important. But few politicians raise any deep vision of what a meaning filled life is or even might be. Perhaps they should not. Yet, although the Western, the wisdom of our time, suggests that education, science, In the sheer accessibility of information must surely knock any deeper urges out of us. These questions, and the need to answer them, have not been knocked out of us, however much we may try to pretend otherwise. The way in which science, the dominant voice of our time, speaks to us and of us is itself revealing. At the opening of his 1986 work, The Blind Watchmaker, Richard Dawkins wrote, Quote, "This book is written in the conviction that our own existence once presented the greatest of all mysteries, but that it is a mystery no longer because it is solved. Darwin and Wallace solved it." End quote. Right there is the gulf that now exists between the accepted secular atheist worldview of our culture and the reality of how many people live and experience their lives Because although Dawkins may feel that our mystery has been solved, and although science has indeed solved part of it, most of us still do not feel solved. We do not live our lives and experience our existence as solved beings. On the contrary, we still experience ourselves, as our ancestors did, as torn and contradictory beings, vulnerable to aspects of ourselves and our world that we cannot understand. In the same way, while no intelligent person could reject what we now now know to be our kinship with the animal kingdom, few people rejoice in being referred to as mere animals. The late atheist writer Christopher Hitchens often used to describe himself in front of audiences as a mammalian. Yet, while it may shock and even stimulate us to recall our origins and the materials we are made from, we also know that we are more than animals and that to live merely as animals would be to degrade this thing we are. Whether we are right or wrong about this, it is something we intuit, in the same way that we know that we are more than mere consumers. It is unbearable for us to talk about ourselves as though we are mere cogs in an economic wheel. We rebel not because we are not these things, but because we know that we are not only these things. We know that we are something else, even if we do not know what that else is. Of course, religious people find talk like this frustrating because, for real believers, the question will always be, why do you not just believe? Yet, this latter question ignores the most likely irreversible damage that science and historical criticism have done to the literal truth claims of religion and ignores the fact that people cannot be forced into faith. Meantime, the non-religious in our culture are deeply fearful of any debate or discussion that they think will make some concessions to the religious, thereby allowing faith-based discussion to flood back into the public space. This may be an error, not least because it encourages people to go to war with those whose lives and outlooks, whether they like it this or not, descend from the same tree. There is no reason why the inheritor of a Judeo-Christian civilization and Enlightenment Europe should spend much, if any, of their time warring with those who still hold the faith from which so many of those beliefs and rights spring. Likewise, there is little sense in those from a Judeo-Christian civilization and Enlightenment Europe, who between them maintain a different understanding, deciding that those who do not literally believe in God are therefore their enemies. Not least because we may yet face far clearer opponents not only of our culture, but of our whole way of living. Perhaps this is why Benedetto Croce said halfway through the last century and Marcelo Perra reiterated more recently that we should call ourselves Christians. Hmm. Unless the non religious are able to work with, rather than against, the source from which their culture came, it is hard to see any way through. After all, though people may try, it is unlikely that anyone is going to be able to invent an entirely new set of beliefs. In the absence of anyone coming up with a wholly new faith system, It is not just that we lose our ability to talk of truths and meanings. We may lose our metaphors. Popular culture is replete with talk of angels and love that will last forever. Candles and other flotsam of religion also drift through. But the language and ideas are empty of meaning. It is the metaphor absent of the things to which it refers, symptoms of a culture running on empty. Yet, it is not only the religious tributary into our culture that has become a conundrum without answer. For many years, it was the presumption of people who might describe themselves as some form of liberals that the lessons of the Enlightenment, the glories of reason, rationality, and science, were so attractive that they would eventually succeed in persuading everyone of their values. Indeed, for many people in the late 20th and early 21st century Europe, the nearest they had to a creed was a belief in human progress, a belief that mankind was on an upwards trajectory, propelled not only by technological progress but by an accompanying progress of thought. The presumption grew that because we were more enlightened than our ancestors and knew more about how we got here and what the universe around us consisted of, we could also avoid their errors. The attraction of knowledge acquired through science, reason, and rationalism were expected to be so self-evident that, like liberalism, it was assumed that life would become a one-way street. Once people began to walk that way and enjoyed the benefits for themselves, it was impossible possible to believe that anybody, least of all anybody acquainted with these new pleasures, would choose to walk backwards down the street. Yet, in the era of mass migration, the people who believed this began to notice before their eyes, in ones and twos and then in larger movements, that there were indeed people walking back down the other way. A whole current of people were flowing the other way. People who thought that the battle to acknowledge the fact of evolution was over in Europe discovered that whole movements of people had been brought in who not only did not believe in evolution, but were determined to prove that evolution was untrue. Those who believed that a system of rights, including women's rights, gay rights, and the rights of religious and minorities were self-evident, suddenly saw ever larger numbers of people who believed not only that there was nothing self-evident about them, but that these rights were fundamentally wrong and misguided. So, the liberal awareness grew that it was possible that one day there would once again end up being more people walking against it than what was presumed to be the current of history with walking with it, and that as a result, the direction of travel might in time change for everyone, and that liberals would be outnumbered. And what then? If that fear did ever arise, it did next to nothing to still the instincts of many liberals. Indeed, while liberals in the Western European democracies spent years discussing increasingly niche aspects of the women's rights and gay rights movements, they continued to argue for the importing of millions of people who thought that such movements had no right existing in the first place. And while, in the second decade of the present century, the question of non-binary, transgender rights began to preoccupy those who thought in terms of social progress, those same people campaigned to bring in millions more people who did not think that women should enjoy the same rights as men. Was this a demonstration of belief in Enlightenment values? A belief that the values of liberalism are so strong, so all-persuasive, that they must in time convert the Eritrean and the Afghan in the Nigerian and the Pakistani? If so, then the daily news from Europe in recent years must stand at the very least as a rebuke to their presumption. A recognition of this must cause immense pain for those through whom it runs, and that itself could lead in various directions. It could result in a denial of these realities, for instance, through the claim that all societies are in fact at least equally patriarchal and oppressive. Or it could result in the the insistence Fiat justitia rerualem, let justice be done, through the, though the heavens fall. A noble sentiment, right up to the moment when the first debris descends. There are, of course, those who hate, who so hate Europe, what they are and what they have been, that they are willing for literally anyone to come in and take over. In Berlin, during the height of this crisis, I spoke with a German intellectual who told me that the German people were anti-Semitic and prejudiced and that for this reason, if no other, they deserve to be replaced. He would not consider the possibility that some of the people being brought in to replace them could make many mid-20th century, let alone modern Germans, look like paragons by comparison. More likely is a growing acceptance that people are different, that different people believe different things, and that our own values may not in fact be universal. This is an acknowledgement that could lead to even more pain. For if the rights movements that sprang from the social progress of the 20th century and the movement towards reason and rationalism that has spread throughout Europe since the 17th century are not the preserve of all mankind, then it means that these are not universal systems, but just systems like any other. This means not only that such a system may not triumph, but that it may in fact be swept away in turn like so much else before it. It is no overstatement to say that for many people, the collapse of this dream is, or will be, just as painful as the loss of religion is to those who lose it. The liberal post-enlightenment dream has always had about it a slight aura of religion. Not that it made the same claims for itself, but that it adopted some of the same tropes. It had its own creation myth, for instance, a big bang of intellectual awakening, as opposed to the long and messy emergence of particular schools of thought. And most importantly, it had its own myth of universal applicability. Many people in Western Europe today have been taught these myths or taken them on because of their quasi-religious attraction. They provide not only something to believe in and to campaign for, but something to live for. They give a purpose and an organization to life. And if they cannot provide the afterlife promised by religions, they can at least suggest, almost always erroneously, a veneer of immortality suggested by the admiration of your peers. In other words, the liberal dream may prove as hard to wrench out of people's hands as religion was because it shares the same irreplaceable advantages. In an age of peace and tranquility, such people's religion might be deemed harmless, and those who do not believe in it may still permit the others to believe it unmolested. But the moment when such beliefs harm the lives of everyone else is perhaps a moment when the less generous and ecumenical attitude towards such believers will arise. In any case, the vast hole already left by religion may yet be opened up still further by the gap left in Europe's last non-religious dream. And after that, deprived of any dream, but still searching for, any, for answers, all the urges and questions will still remain. The Last Art Today the most obvious answer is this. The 19th century answer is, no, is most notable by its absence. Why can art not take over without the encumbrances of religion, from where these religions left off? The answer lies in the work of those who still aspire to this calling. It nearly all has the aura of a destroyed city. Such failed predecessors as Wagner seem to have made the idea of any similar aspirations seem futile when not dangerous. Perhaps it was the realization that, of this that persuaded so many contemporary artists to stop aiming at connecting any tr- to any con- enduring truths, to abandon any attempt to pursue beauty or truth, and instead to simply say to the public, I am down in the mud with you. Certainly, there was a point in the 20th century Europe when the aim of the artist and the expectations of the public changed. It was evident in which the way in, the way in which the public approached to art moved from admiration, of, man, I wish I could do that, to disdain, saying, even a child could do that. Technical ambition significantly diminished and often disappeared altogether. And the moral ambitions of art traveled on the same trajectory. One might blame this on Marcel Duchamp in his sculpture Fountain, which was a urinal, but enough of the continent's artistic culture fell in behind him to suggest that he had merely led where others wished to follow. Today if you walk through a gallery like Tate Modern in London, the only thing more striking than the lack of technical skill is the lack of ambition. The bolder works may claim to tell us about death, suffering, cruelty or pain, but few have anything actually to say about these subjects other than pointing to the fact that they exist. Certainly they provide no answers to the problem they exist. Every adult knows that suffering and death exist, and if they did not then they would hardly they will hardly be persuaded in an art gallery but the art of our time seems to have given up any effort to kindle something else in us. In particular, it has given up that desire to connect us to something like the spirit of religion or that thrill of recognition, what Aristotle termed agonor- anagnorisis which grants you the sense of having just caught up with a truth that was always waiting for you. It may be that this sense only occurs if you tap into a profound truth and that the desire to do so is something of which artists, like almost everyone else, have become suspicious or incapable. Go to any of the temples of modern culture and you can see great crowds of people wandering about, looking for something, but it is unclear what they are after. There are strands of art that can remind people of something greater. Once, while wandering somewhat aimlessly and underwhelmed through an art gallery, I hear the strains of speminalium and made my way towards the sound. Suddenly I realized another reason why the early gallery- galleries had been so depopulated. Everyone had migrated towards the same sound installation by Janet Cardiff, consisting of 40 speakers arranged in an oval, each relaying the voice of a singer in a choir. In the center, people stood mesmerized. Couples held hands and one pair sat embraced. This was before Thomas Tallis' work featured in the sadomasochist novels of E.L. James, or who knows what might have happened. It was deeply moving, though also striking that people thought the achievement was Janet Cardiff's rather than Thomas Tallis’s. But that was anagnorisis happening right there. One could not be certain of how many of the crowd knew either the word or meaning of the piece that the sound installation was taken from but something strange and out of time was occurring. One of the few contemporary works that have a comparable effect is the sculpture by Antony Gormley, or Gormley called Another Place, consisting of 100 cast-iron, life-size human figures looking out to sea on Crosby Beach, near Liverpool. The whole installation, which was made permanent at the request of local residents, is best appreciated when the tides are receding or when the figures are facing into the setting sun. The reason is partly the same. Here is an image experienced in the everyday that, ignites, that reignites the memory of a story, in this case, resurrection, from the heart of our culture. It may not answer it, but it remembers it. Such works are, however, no more than the artistic wing of Ernst Wolfgang Bakkenford's problem. What resonates does so because of something that happened before, not because of anything intrinsically great about the work. Indeed, when such works succeed, they arguably do so because they are parasitic works of art. They get what meaning they have from a tradition they themselves cannot profess or sustain. Yet works like this do at least seek to address the big issues that religion seeks to address. Their answers may be more blurred and their confidence more timid than what came before, but they do at least try to speak to the same needs and the same truths. The more original strain in European art is the one that deals with the continent's underlying trauma. This is part of an ongoing tradition, but it is also one that constitutes a full stop. Even before the First World War, there was a strain in European art and music, in Germany more than anywhere else, that was turning from ripeness to overripeness and then into something else. The last strains of the Austro-German Romantic tradition, exemplified by Gustav Mahler, Richard Strauss, and Gustav Klimt, seemed almost to have destroyed itself by reaching a pitch of ripeness, From which nothing could follow other than complete breakdown. It was not just that their subject matter was so death obsessed, but that the tradition felt as though it could not be stretched any further or innovated anymore without snapping. And so it snapped in modernism and then postmodernism. There is a sense that ever since then successful European art, and German art in particular, has only been possible by existing in the debris that are the result of that explosion. Other than that, no one has found a way out the major visual artists of post-war germany have spent their careers working in the rubble of their culture's catastrophe whether they are celebrated because they tackle it or tackle it in order to be celebrated it is noticeable in germany that it is noticeable that germany's most renowned artists remain immersed in that disaster the career of Gerhard Richter, for instance, born in 1932, really began in the 1960s with a series of oils on canvas, repainted from photographs. Some were easier to begin than others or to begin to interpret than others. Among the most famous and obvious of these is the haunting painting from a photograph of a slightly lopsided man in an ill-fitting Nazi uniform, titled Uncle Rudy. Others were clearly of equally ominous subject matter even when the viewer didn't know precisely what the subject was. Er Hyde shows an oldish man heading into a building with a policeman beside him. But even if we knew nothing of the names, we hardly need to be told that Werner Hyde was an SS doctor who was captured after nearly 15 years on the run and hanged himself in prison. Others, such as Family Lychee, further blur the lines. Are we looking at a family of perpetrators or victims? They lived through those years. Something must have happened to them. Beyond the technical skill, Richter's accomplishment is in capturing those is capturing through these often marginal shots the fact that a pall hangs over everything from the era they depict and the era in which they were created. A layer of guilt and blame lies over the whole culture like a fog. The same goes for the work of Anselm Kiefer. Born 13 years after Richter, in the year the Second World War ended, his work is even more obviously devoted to recording a great culture in the wreckage, of its self-destruction. His vast piece Interior from 1981, like Richter's work of the 60s, obviously records the horrors. In this case, the first time viewer can probably guess, by the grandiosity of the room and the dilapidation of the image, the shattered look of the glass ceiling, the ripped walls in the grand hall, that this is a Nazi room. Further reading shows that it is in fact one of the offices in in the new Reich Chancellery designed by Albert Speer for Adolf Hitler. But the sense that this is a grand vista, the painting is about nine square meters, of a room in which something terrible happened is as obvious as a guilty looking man in a police lineup. More recent works like Ages of the World, 2014, are also carefully created depictions of societal ruin. In that case, discarded canvas is piled on discarded canvas, amidst rubble and twisted metal. It is as though, after the catastrophe, little can be done with it other than to dwell on the fact that everything is ephemeral, everything can be destroyed, next to nothing, can be saved. What comes after this full stop in tradition, nobody can tell. One of the reasons why it seems so difficult for artists to move beyond the catastrophe is not just because there is a knowledge that the continent's politics and art went wrong, but the fear, almost certainly self-aggrandizing, that the politics went wrong partly because the art went wrong. Of course, That would result in a certain reticence as well as fear about the matter we are dealing with. For now, the world of higher culture remains a part of the wider European crime scene. Artists and others might pick over the debris to work out what happened, but they know that any continuation of that tradition risks at some point kindling the embers and causing the crime to reoccur. The only answer is to conclude that what happened occurred in spite of the art and that art in other words had absolutely no impact on the culture. If that is so, and art does indeed make nothing happen, then in the final analysis, culture is of absolutely no importance. This is one explanation at least for why the art of the world currently plays the same games of facile deconstruction that the academy has engaged in, and why the partly New York-imported art of tongue-in-cheek, naive, ironic, or jokey insincerity fills so many galleries and sells for such huge sums of money. These three movements in contemporary art, the parasitic, the haunted full stop, and the studiedly insincere are not aberrations in culture. They represent the culture all too well. The first cannot sustain itself. The second comes with such an oppressive weight that anybody might eventually wish to throw it off. The third has no point. We can witness the results of all this about us, Go to any of the towns or cities mentioned in this book and you will find that act of throwing off. Although some concerts go on in some places as usual, everywhere there is an attempt to accommodate the changes going on all around. In Malmo one night, the only concert in town is a fusion concert that has something to do with falafel, which is only right in its way. The culture should reflect the society and the society has changed. The programs in the concert hall reflect this as much as the emptying synagogue does. Both are demonstrations of what is happening and adequately suggest the times we are living in. The fact of this transition from one culture into something else is the greatest possible refutation of the presumptions of recent generations. Contra all the assurances and expectations, the people who came into Europe did not throw themselves into our culture and become a part of it. They brought their own cultures, and they did so at the precise moment that our own culture was at a point that it lacked the confidence to argue its own case. Indeed, it was with some relief that many Europeans welcomed such alleviation from themselves, happily changed with the times, and watered themselves down or changed completely. Depressive lucidity. Nobody knows, of course, what comes next. It could be that this stage goes on for a very long time to come. Or it could be that all changes and all changes, and that something steps into the spiritual and cultural vacuum exceptionally swiftly, one of the reasons why Michel Hulebeck may turn out to be the emblematic writer of our age is not just that he is a chronicler, an exemplar, of the fullest-blown nihilism, but because he has also forcefully and persuasively suggested what may follow it. For Houellebecq and his characters, life is a solitary and pointless labor, devoid of interest, joy, or comfort aside from the occasional, generally prostitute-acquired blowjob. The fact that the chronicler of such an existence can have been celebrated by his peers with the Prix Goncourt among other awards is perhaps less surprising than the fact that the writer has proved so popular. For almost two decades, his books have been bestsellers in their original French and their translations. When books sell this well, especially when they are also quality rather than pap literature, it is because they speak to something of our times. It may be an extreme version of our present existence, but even the bracing nature of Hulabek's nihilism would not be so sufficient an attraction without his, reading, his readers getting at least a disgusted flicker of self-recognition. His first major novel, Atomized, in 1998, laid out what became a signature scene, depicting a society and a set of lives with no purpose whatsoever. Familial relations are poisonous where they are not absent. Death in the fear of it, fills the space that was once absorbed by the business of God. At one point, the protagonist Michelle ta- takes to his bed for two weeks and repeatedly asks himself as he stares at a radiator,, quote, "How long could Western civilization continue without religion?" End quote "No revelation came from this, only more looking at the radiator." In the middle of what is described as depressive lucidity, there are, apart from sex, no moments of pleasure. Christine, with whom Bruno has been having a halting, meaningless conversation, interrupts a silence by suggesting they go to an orgy on a nudist beach. The philosophical state of their culture has washed across them and submerged them under its own pointlessness. At one stage, we read, quote, in the midst of the suicide of the West, it was clear that they had no chance, end quote. Although the joys of consumerism are certainly not enough, they can prove diverting. As Bruno is meant to be arranging for the burial or cremation of his mother's body, he plays Tetris on his Game Boy. Game over, it says, and plays a cheerful little tune. While the themes and characters of Atomized are repeated in Platform, first published in English in 2002, they also find something to center on. Again, graphic sex, repetitions, and variations of the same are the only light in the gloom. Valerie, a woman who is willing to do absolutely anything sexually with the main character, Michelle, is a good find and a source for hope. Even so, the genitals, as it is made clear, are meager compensation for the misfortune, shortedness, and pointlessness of life. However, in Platform, another worldview imposes itself on Hulabek's characters. Having Having given up his job as a civil servant, Michelle takes Valerie on holiday to Thailand, He loathes the decadence of the tourism and the people who take part in it, even whilst taking part in it himself. One day, Islamic terrorists, who also loathe the decadence on show but have a view of their own on what to do about it, storm the beach and massacre tourists, including Valerie. After the 2002 Bali terrorist attacks, this particular scenario was seen to have been prescient. But whatever respect Houlebecq might have garnered from this was mitigated by the trouble the book helped get him into in France. After the massacre, his contempt for Islam builds to a paragraph in which he reflects, quote, all right, this is going to be good. It is certainly possible to remain alive, animated simply by a desire for vengeance. Many people have lived that way. Islam had wrecked my life, and Islam was certainly something which I could hate. In the days that followed, I devoted myself trying to feel hatred for Muslims, And I was quite good at it and started to follow the international news again. Every time I heard that a Palestinian terrorist or child or woman had been gunned down on the Gaza Strip, I felt a quiver of enthusiasm at the thought that this meant one less Muslim. And yes, it was possible to live like this. End quote. For this passage and others deemed offensive, both in interviews and in Atomized, where a character describes Islam as a stupid, false, and obscure, or the most of all religions, Houlebecq found himself the target of legal proceedings in France. Whether for this reason or his oft cited desire to minimize his taxes, Houlebecq left France to live in Ireland. Perhaps it was the stupidity that chased him away. After all, Anybody who actually read Hulabek, as opposed to just the excerpts they hope to be offended by, could see that the characters in his novels are infinitely harsher in their criticism and contempt of the modern West than they are of the precepts and claims of Islam or Muslims. Hulabek's contempt fires in all directions, including at homosexuals, heterosexuals, the Chinese, and most nationalities— Dragging Hulubek to court for being rude about Muslims was a demonstration of a gross game of sensitivity trump cards, but it also showed a literary ignorance. Not just in hauling an author to court for his expressions, but in the fact that Hulubek's derision or contempt so clearly goes beyond the whines and pleadings of self-interest groups. His is a rage and contempt aimed against this age and species as a whole. Yet, However the great acrobatics and pyrotechnics in a literature of this type, it is always the case that it must at some point either mature or fizzle out. The evidence that Houlebecq wasn't going to fizzle out came with The Map and the Territory from 2010, the story of an artist who makes himself fabulously wealthy through his deeply occasional work. The wealth allows him to seclude himself from a France doomed to become in the near future little more than a cultural theme park, for the new Russian and Chinese super-rich. The work is not only an exploration of the traditional Hulebeck themes—dysfunctional family life, empty sex, and solitude—but a profound satire on modern culture. It includes a hilarious and devastating self-portrait, a reminder of the truth that the most savage critics always turn their gaze on themselves. The artist visits the drunken writer Michel Hulebeck in his remote and unattractive Irish retreat. The self-portrait is remarkably accurate. Dissolute, alcoholic, depressive, and meandering, the portrait of Hulebek in The Map in the Territory shows an almost affrontingly desiccated life. It is a life that produces enemies. A curious detail is that at one point in the novel, Hulebek is found dead, decapitated, flayed, and mutilated. In 2016, that scene assumed less amusing overtones other book, Submission, was due for publication on the 7th of January. Even before publication, it had caused critical and political controversy. The plot takes French politics forward to the 2020s. President François Hollande is coming to the end of a disastrous second term. The National Front Party of Marine Le Pen is ahead in the polls. The moderate right of the UMP, Union pour un mouvement populaire, collapses, as do the socialists. But another party has come together over recent years, a Muslim party led by a moderate Islamist who enjoys the support of France's growing Muslim population. As the runoffs get closer, it is clear to the other mainstream parties that the only way to keep the National Front from power is to unite behind the Islamist party. They do so, and the Islamist party wins. Using some pliant old French left-wingers for cover, the Islamists set about transforming France not least by taking control of education and transforming with the help of with the help of substantial gulf funding all public universities including the sorbonne into islamic institutions gradually even the novelist's main character a dissolute scholar of the 19th century novelist jk hoisman sees the sense of converting to islam In the few public comments he made about the book, Hulebeck was at pains to stress his admiration for Islam, another demonstration perhaps that the browbeating and threats of the thought police do work. It was to be expected that such pleas would be drowned out, if not for the reasons that transpired. Among those to attack and ridicule Hulebeck for a plot many claimed was willfully provocative was a satirical weekly magazine called Charlie Hebdo, then little known outside France. The magazine, which has a long tradition of left-wing, secular, anti-clerical iconoclasm, had come to limited international attention in recent years after repeatedly showing itself willing to depict Islam's prophet, a willingness it was almost alone in demonstrating after the 2005 Danish cartoon affairs. Despite assaults, legal threats, and a firebomb attack on their Paris offices, the publication held firm as it had over earlier critiques of the Pope, Marine Le Pen, and others. In expectation of the launch of the new novel, a typically ugly caricature of a hideous, gnome-like Houlebecq was on the cover of the magazine on that January morning when two Islamist gunmen forced their way into the Charlie Hebdo's Paris offices and shot dead ten of the magazine's staff and two policemen. As the Yibin-trained French Muslim gunmen left the offices, they were heard shouting, We have avenged the Prophet Muhammad and Allahu Akbar. Among the victims of their assault on the magazine's morning editorial meeting was the economist Bernard Maurice, a close friend of Houlebecq. Houlebecq's publishers announced that his publicity tour was canceled, and the author himself went into hiding. Ever since, he has been accompanied by bodyguards. Yet, although the French state is helping to protect him, it has by no means thrown itself behind him. In the immediate aftermath of the Charlie Hebdo attacks, the country's socialist prime minister, Manuel Valls, chose to make an address in which he said, quote, France is not Michel Houlibecq. It is not intolerance, hatred, or fear. Quote. Obviously, unless he had got hold of an earlier proof, the prime minister had not read the novel. Although it should be no concern of a prime minister, even if the novel was provocative, as it happens, submission is no mere provocation. It is an infinitely subtler and more sophisticated book than Jean Raspail's The Camp of the Saints or other dystopian novels. The life of the main character, Francois, is not only dry in the usual Houlabekian way, it is also painfully in need of relief. As French culture and society decay all around him, two particular revelations stand out. The first comes as a result of his Jewish girlfriend's choice to leave France and join her family in Israel. After a sexually athletic final meeting, she asks him what he will do, especially now that the university looks as if it will close when the Muslim party comes to power. Quote, I kissed her softly on the lips and said, there is no Israel for me. End quote. Not a deep thought, but that's how it was. In fact, this is a very deep thought indeed. But the deeper spiritual point in the novel lies precisely in François's meditations on his scholarly interest. Houlebecq, like a lot of his literary critics, assumes that his readers will be unfamiliar with the work of Huysmans, But a significant portion will have read or at least heard of A Rebours, Against Nature, one of the central texts of the late 19th century French decadence. By the point at which the novel starts, Francois is tiring of his enthusiasm for Huysmans in the way that many academics are after their first love is overlaid by years of identical lectures and questions. But the choice of Huysmans as a constant presence in the novel is important, because it, as it develops, Francois not only rediscovers part of his passion for Huysmans, but also reconfronts one of the central challenges of Huysmans' life. Like many of his contemporary decadents across Europe, Hoismans ended up being received into the Roman Catholic Church. It is a journey that Francois tries to emulate as everything falls apart around him, while intimations and then sporadic and shocking outbursts of violence become commonplace across France. Francois even heads back to the monastery in which Hoismans found his faith and in which their young Francois spent some time in search of his literary idol while a younger man. He sits in front of the same Madonna, and his meditations strain towards the same goal. But he cannot do it. He may have returned to the source, and he may even be open to the moment, but he cannot perform the necessary leap of faith. And so, he returns to Paris, and there, university authorities, now Islamic, explain to Francois, who they have generously pensioned off, the logic of Islam. And not just the logic that will get his career back at the Sorbonne if he converts, but the logic it will make in the other corners of his life. He will have wives, up to four, and younger if he wishes, even than his usual tastes. And of course, he will be part of a community of meaning for the first time. He will be able to continue enjoying most of the few pleasures he has had and will gain much more than he had thought possible in the ways of comforts. Unlike the leap required to become a Catholic, The logic of Islam is practical and, in a society ripe for submission, becomes irrefutable. Even before its publication, the question around submission was whether or not the novel's vision was remotely plausible. Since its publication, part of that question seems to have been answered. Endless, small details rhyme. For instance, in the run-up to the crucial election of the French media and mainstream politicians deliberately obscure stories of real interest. French readers will be reminded of the events in December 2014 when Muslim extremists kept driving into crowds of people while shouting praises to their god, only for the politicians and media to dismiss the events' as meaningless traffic incidents. Then, there is the portrait of the Jewish community leaders who remain around to flatter their enemies and negotiate for themselves even as everything signals their community's destruction. And of course, the novel's truest, con- truest conceit is the depiction of a class of politicians across the political divide so keen to be seen above all as anti-racist that they end up flattering and ultimately handing over their country to the worst and most swiftly growing racist movement of their time. But more important than the political analysis is the societal diagnosis. If there is a reason why Hulebeck towers over most contemporary novelists, it is because he recognizes the depth and sweep of the questions now facing Western Europe. The most propitious coincidence of his career is that his work came to artistic maturity in time to capture a society from over tipping from over-ripeness into something else. But what precisely? More decadence and barbarism or salvation? And if salvation, then what kind and whose? Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel For more exciting content.